I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be reading once again through verses 11 through 22. Reading through verses 11 through 22, Ephesians 2. But um, I will be specifically limiting my, uh, my comments to uh, Ephesians 2. 17 through 22, which is where we left off last time we looked at uh, Ephesians. But before we continue uh, through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and mostly to uh, the Gentile Christians in Ephesus, although there would have been Jewish Christians in that congregation as well, let's go before the Lord and let's ask him to bless our time in his word. The Sovereign Lord, Today, as we approach your word, we understand, we know full well that we have three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we know, oh Lord, that all three conspire whenever your word is being preached to make it useless to your people, to make it useless to the lost. They do want, oh Lord, the seed to fall upon the path to be trodden underfoot or eaten by birds and simply to, to go away. They don't want it to go down into our hearts and to produce a, a harvest of righteousness, Lord. They do not want life-changing fruit to come from the preaching of the word. But we pray, O oh Lord, that you would thwart them. Help us to realize that when you are speaking to us through your word, the most important information we could possibly be receiving, far more important than any text, any email, any letter, Lord, is being delivered to us because these are the things of life and death. These are the things of eternal life and eternal death. And oh Lord, we need to know the difference between the two. And we also need to know what your will is in our lives. Help us then to take these things seriously. Help me to divide this word aright, Lord, to apply it to your people. Let me say nothing that is not in keeping with that word. Let me be simple, direct, and let me open up the whole counsel of God, holding back nothing that will be profitable to your little lambs. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, 
but the word of our Lord will last forever. One of the uh, greatest misunderstandings that modern Christians have, and I, I suppose probably Christians in every age, is that there was always peace and harmony, rainbows and puppies and pancakes and unicorns in the early church during the apostolic period, that everything was sweetness and light, everybody got along, there was no schism, no division, and so on, and we just need to get back to that apostolic period, and then everything would be right. But the thing is, that's not true. There was, obviously, schism, division, and even disagreements, arguments, and failings amongst the apostles themselves when they were alive. We see, for instance, uh, one of the the greatest and most important disputes between apostles uh, opened up for us by Paul in Galatians chapter 2. I'd like you to turn there if you would with me. All you have to do is go back one book. Specifically, I'd draw your attention to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, and just to set the, uh, uh, the stage there, Antioch obviously was a, a church to the north of Israel. It was made up heavily of Gentiles. There were Jewish believers there. And Antioch was, of course, the church that had sent them to Galatia and on their missionary journeys there that had set them apart. That is Paul and Barnabas. But, so he's talking about when Peter came and visited that church. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews. So here Paul is calling Peter on the carpet, the spokesman of the day, uh, the apostles, an incredibly important man, obviously, in the apostolic church. But Peter should have known better what had happened. He had come to the church in Antioch, a church made up of, of Gentiles and Jews, both called to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, both worshiping together and Suddenly, when it comes to the meal, and possibly even the Lord's Supper, he had withdrawn. He had started keeping kashrut, kosher again, and only eating with Jewish believers. And Paul calls him out on this. Now, why do I say that Peter should have known better? Well, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, uh, Peter is called to Samaria, a place that uh, Jews hated to go in the first place. Uh, and he is staying in the house of Simon, a tanner, uh, who deals with dead animals, another thing that was unclean in the eyes of, of, of Jews. And uh, the time came for dinner, and he went up uh, to the roof, and he was praying, and suddenly he sees a sheet descending, filled with all sorts of animals, even unclean ones. And a voice says, Peter, arise, kill, and eat. This is the voice of God telling him to, to eat. And he says, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unclean. He says, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a good Jewish boy. I have never eaten non-kosher animals, certainly not the piggy-wiggies and things like that that I see in the sheet coming down from heaven. And the Lord rebukes him at that point. 
telling him not to call unclean that which is called clean. Now, this was of vital importance because Peter was about to go to the house of Cornelius, a centurion. He was about to evangelize him and his household. Cornelius was a God-fearer, but he was not a circumcised Jew. His house was unclean. His kitchen would have been viewed as unclean under the old uh, Mosaic ceremonial law. Peter could not have rightly entered in. But the Lord made it clear that it was his desire that he would have one church and that the distinctions between Gentiles and Jews were now broken down. The law having been fulfilled, that is the ceremonial law, which had pointed forward towards Christ and kept God's people as a separate community now being fulfilled, Jewish and Gentile believers could eat, could drink. You couldn't have the Lord's Supper without there being that removal of the ceremonial law. Because Jews and Gentiles would, would have to eat separately. Peter saw now that, that the Lord was opening up the kingdom on equal ground to the Gentiles. That they were being brought in. And this was, was supernaturally revealed to him. And so he went in and he, he ate with them. The Holy Spirit descended upon these Gentiles. They were baptized and they entered into the kingdom. Now, Jewish believers back in Jerusalem heard about this and they were scandalized. He went in and you ate with Gentiles and Peter explained what had happened. And he explained also how the Holy Spirit had descended upon them. We see, for instance, in the book of Acts, when we went through that a while back, that whenever the gospel was advancing into new regions, when it went to Samaria, when it went into the Gentile regions beyond Samaria, you saw new acts of the Holy Spirit opening up the way for the message. The messengers went into that area, whether it was men like Philip or men like Peter. They were able to do amazing things by the power of the Holy Spirit. And by that, they were authenticated as messengers. So whenever the gospel went forth, you saw those gifts of the Spirit, supernatural gifts of the Spirit given to these men to authenticate them as God's messengers. This was a special office that was given to them while the, the gospel is advancing. So the Holy Spirit then fell upon these Gentile believers and they had spoken in uh, tongues, by, which was probably meant languages that were not known to them, not the, certainly not the, I hate to say it this way, but the gibberish that we hear uh, in the modern day when, when tongue speaking is being spoken of, but actual glossolia, the tongues of other men. So they received the Holy Spirit, and when the Jews heard it in Jerusalem, they glorified God, and they said that the gospel, then the kingdom has been opened up to the Jews. They have been made believers, and so on. The gift of God has been granted to them. Specifically, they said, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. They've been brought into the kingdom. Now, this shouldn't have surprised Jews because, of course, the prophets had said that the day was coming when the Gentiles and eunuchs and people who had been excluded from the, the kingdom would be brought in. And that had happened. Now, there are some things that we need to learn from this. First, the gospel was not given to make Gentiles into Jews. The Judaizers certainly tried to do that. They tried to uh, get all of these Gentiles who were being brought into the kingdom to get circumcised and begin keeping the Mosaic law and so on and to cut them off from, from the rest of the world and so on. But rather, that was not the case. Gentiles were brought into the kingdom and they were brought in as equal believers. And the ceremonial law was no longer constraining them. 
The gospel was given, Paul tells us in Ephesians, to save sinners. And specifically, he says, this, the group of sinners who are being saved were a body of people called from every nation, called by God, chosen by God before time, and then called in due time through the preaching of the gospel and the working of the Holy Spirit in them, and they were brought into the kingdom, both Jews and Gentiles. And once they were brought into the kingdom, brought into the church, they were members of one body. There wasn't, you know, the class A believers and the class B believers. Oh, Jews first and, you know, Gentiles after them, way after them. And the two should keep separate and so on. No longer. They were both brothers and sisters in Christ. That's literally the the family dynamic that's supposed to go on. They were like your brother. He's like a brother to me. He is a brother to you because you're one in Christ. Saved by the same Savior and therefore one assembly, one kahal in the Old Testament, one ecclesia, one assembly in the New Testament. Paul, and now I'm going to ask you to turn back again even further to Romans and to chapter 3. Paul makes it clear they were saved to become part of the same body because they both needed the same salvation because everybody needed the same salvation. He writes in Romans 3, 9, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Jews and Greeks is a catch-all term saying everybody on earth, every race, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, everybody, all of them under sin. And then he goes on to prove how nobody is righteous, not one person. Jew or Gentile on the face of the planet. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. But now skip down. Now we know that, I'm going to verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law? Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised, that is, those who are born as Jews, and uh, circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, through faith. What's he saying? All of us need salvation, regardless of whether we were in a kingdom sense near, that is, the Jews who had the oracles of God, who had been raised within that covenant community, who had the sign of covenantal membership given to them in in circumcision, still they needed to be saved through faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There is no one who has ever been born on the face of this planet, no ordinary person other than Jesus Christ who has not needed to be saved through faith in Jesus. All of us 
All of us on the same level. All of us fallen in our sins and trespasses. All of us, Jew or Gentile, regardless, white, black, red, yellow, doesn't matter what color. All of us headed towards hell. Rich or poor, slave or free, doesn't matter. The same destiny would have come upon all of us had it not been for Christ's intercession. And that is what happened. God interceded to save men through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. This means that it it, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Salvation has always been through faith in Jesus Christ, not by ethnicity, not by your own attempts at law keeping. It has been well said that the ground at the cross is level. No one from any race or tribe, or tongue, or ethnicity, or however you want to spin it, nation stands higher before the cross. We are all equally low when we come there. And we are all equally exalted because of what Christ has done for us. Now, I must tell you this, that when you talk this way about the need that Jews had for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, and still do, doesn't matter if you're ethnically Jewish today or you were ethnically Jewish back in Paul's day, you still needed to be saved like everyone else through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you say that, however, and when you talk about how Jews and Gentiles were intended to be part of the same body, all of us brought into the church a a glorious body that God has been building up from the people whom he chose before time. Paul made that point, you remember, in Ephesians 1. When you talk to people about that and you say, we're all one, there's no ethnic advantage to the Jew, a lot of people get very upset within the American evangelical church, particularly if they're dispensational in their theology, and they say, eh, well, that's replacement theology, and it's anti-Semitic. And then they'll really get on you for that. Uh, That's garbage. There is no such thing as replacement theology, really. That's their shorthand for covenant theology, and it certainly is not anti-Semitic to say what Paul says about everyone, that all are in need of salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that all are made part of the same glorious church when they're saved by Christ, and that we're all on the same level. There is no replacement theology going on here within covenant theology. It is not replacement any more than when someone is adopted into the family. That means the original children within that family are replaced. We have a new child. All of you now are sorry. That's not the way it works. They are welcomed into the family that's being built up. Welcomed, in this case, in union with Christ, into God's family. It's not replacement. It's union. Being united to Christ and therefore united to his body. United to believers Old Testament and New Testament, you are just as saved as Abraham and David and Peter and Paul when you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter how much money you earn. It doesn't matter how you speak, what you look like, any of those things. What matters is faith in Christ. Paul is driving this point home just as he did in all of his epistles. Once we are united to Christ, we're part of his family. 
part of the the household, fellow members. Think about that. The words that he uses, fellow members of the household of God. And therefore, we're part of a family. We're supposed to live together and we're supposed to treat one another as family members. That is indeed why the early church and why we are supposed to call one another brother and sister. If we're believers in Christ, we're part of the same family. In fact, and and sometimes I, I really upset people when I make this point, the link that ties us together in the church actually is stronger than the link that ties you to your biological family. Think about this. If you're my brother or sister in Christ, I'm going to spend eternity with you, and our communion will be greater even, stronger even, than the communion that exists here on earth between husband and wife. It'll be perfect. We'll know each other perfectly. We'll know one another's thoughts. We'll be, we'll be gloriously united to Christ. Now, it's wonderful to have parents. It's wonderful to have biological brothers and sisters and children and so on. But if they're not united to Christ by faith, then at death, there'll be an eternal division. And so family is in many cases something that is biological family that only goes on for time. But the church goes on for eternity. And it is, why, it is so very important that we understand that's who we are. We're not just part of a family, Paul says. He calls us part of a, a living temple. He says that you are Ephesian Jews, Ephesian Gentiles, all of you who have been united to Jesus Christ, chosen by him before time. You are now being built into a temple in which God dwells in his spirit. You are each living stones chosen by God, the great architect who chose long before time that this rock, or sorry, not this rock, this stone would go in this place and this stone would go in that place and so on. And so his temple would be built up person by person into this glorious edifice. It took decades to build Herod's temple. In fact, the sad thing was it wasn't completed just shortly before the Jewish rebellion and then destroyed utterly in (laughs) 70 AD. And it was supposed to be the most glorious thing that had ever dwelt in Jerusalem, the most blessed city. But that temple will pale to insignificance compared to the living temple that God is building person by person here on earth. Made up of who? Made up of you who know the Lord despite your, all of your imperfections here. Despite the fact that you're not quite the shape that you should be. And I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually. But God is going through that process, that process that some of us really dislike. You remember how it was when they were building Solomon's temple. They said that at the temple site, you didn't hear any tools being used on the stones because they, as they were put in place, they had been so perfectly carved and shaped and measured and so on by Hiram's workmen at the quarries that all they had to do was take these stones and slot them into place. But if you'd gone to the quarry, you would have seen, you know, clouds of dust, the sound of hammers and chisels, and, and lots of stones flying in the air as bits of, of, of these various stones is, is being chopped off, and they're being carved into the right shape and so on. Well, I have to tell you, here on earth is where that process of the carving and the chipping and the shaping and the molding, that's where it takes place. 
And unfortunately, we don't often like that process by which God removes the parts of us that don't look like his son. It's a very difficult process, but one where when finally you as that stone that was quarried and shaped, chosen by a master, uh, a, a, a master stone cutter, and then shaped by a master artisan, the same one, to be perfect, you will be slotted into that place and there will be an absolutely seamless joint. They said you couldn't put a knife blade between the stones of the temple. To this day, they've said that the very foundations of the temple, which can be accessed by a tunnel, you can't slip a piece of paper between them. They are so close. That is how closely built together the temple will be, made up of you all, living stones, united, not just to Christ, but to one another. And so Paul says, you have peace with God, that assurance that the curse of the law has been removed and you have a different status. Not only does, did he come to proclaim peace with God, but peace with one another. And Jesus provided that through his atoning work because they all needed it. All of us depend upon that gladsome message regardless of where we go. And it was all according to the covenants and promises of God. He makes that point. You remember Paul is constantly going back to the story of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. This old man who was called out of Ur of the Chaldees with his old wife. And then he had this miracle child, Isaac, who became the head of the various tribes of Israel who were born to Jacob. And so in Genesis 18, 18, we read that God said, since Abraham surely become, uh, shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. And then in Genesis 22, 18, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And Paul makes the point, who is the seed of Abraham? Ultimately, the seed was Jesus Christ, the blessing to whom all the nations, uh, the one who would be the blessing to all the nations. And then in Galatians, Paul opens up the fact that just as Abraham believed God, this is Galatians 3, 6, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And then he goes on in, in Galatians 3, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The ground is level at the cross. And then he goes on to say, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. How do we become Abraham's seed? It's not by genetic descent. It's by faith in the same Messiah who's making us part of that glorious temple because through him we have access by the Spirit to the Father and it was through his sacrifice, through shedding his blood, through the preaching of the gospel then that the apostles did in his name because there was no other way for us all to be saved. And therefore we're fellow citizens in the commonwealth not of Israel but fellow citizens in the commonwealth of God in his family. So therefore, the church, as, and this is a, a quote from uh, uh, 
Hendrickson. He says, the church is not to be divided into first-class members, Jewish converts to Christianity, and second-class members, Gentile converts to Christianity. The terms of admission are the same for all, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a faith working through love. The rank or standing is all the same. You are all children of God. And all of you are being built into that temple. Even Jesus, when he was talking, you remember, to the Samaritan woman at the well, he pointed out that, you know, you worship at the mountain, that's wrong. You should be worshiping at, at the temple in Jerusalem. But he said the day is coming, or rather, but the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so the day is coming where they would not worship in the mountain or in Jerusalem, but everywhere by the Spirit, because they were going to become the living temple that God was raising out there, part of a living temple. So one of the things that we learn about this church, whereas the temple, once it was completed, it didn't grow any longer, the church is constantly growing. How is it growing? Well, it grows as new members are added to it. As you go out into the world... You individuals, and you preach the gospel to other people. What are you doing? You are adding new stones. Stones, ultimately, that were chosen by God before the beginning of creation. His elect people, but you're being used in his quarry to take those whom he has set apart and to make them part of that, that growing, living temple. Now, who is the cornerstone of this temple? Paul tells us, and the cornerstone, of course, was the most important stone. It was the stone that set the, 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 uh, not just the, uh, the size of the temple. It also determined where all of the walls, where everything else was going to be set. The first stone that determined the very direction and center of that temple. Paul says, that's Jesus. He's the cornerstone in that living temple. So... I want to make some applications of, of what uh, Paul is teaching here for us. There's uh, maybe several already. There's some that I, I think are worthy of, of thinking about. We are part of a family. We're part of the family of faith. You who are members of this church, members of this congregation, you are fellow members of the family with me. Now, it is often the case, sadly, that we have to you know, say goodbye to family members as, as uh, the army in their infinite wisdom moves people on or people go off to different places to follow jobs or the, the sadder separation that occurs at death. When we, we say, see you later to people who we've known and loved, that happens. It's sad for me. To, I, I'm always very sad when I'm saying goodbye to people who I, I know and I love and who I really do think of as people of my family, the, the members of it. But it's in one sense even sadder when somebody comes and they say, yeah, we're, we're moving on. Uh, we're going to this church that's, you know, in the same area, but just over here or this assembly or this group or whatever over here. And I will ask, was there something missing in the family? Was there something missing in, in, in this church, some vital truth of the gospel that we were not proclaiming? Something that we were, we were doing, something related to the gospel message that brings us together. Because if that's the case... Something is very wrong. If we're, I mean, Jesus is the cornerstone, must be the cornerstone of our church. His teaching, his commands. Our calling is to, to teach the things that Christ has commanded. 
And if we're failing either by adding to what he's, he's commanded, things that he never commanded, or we're failing by not declaring the whole counsel of God, I want you, I want you to tell me. And I want you to tell me before it comes to the point where you say, hey, we're leaving because spiritually <laughs> this place is whack. You're not teaching what, what God wants. You know, that last message you had on uh, three steps to financial security, why Putin is the Antichrist and, and so on, that, that just isn't the Bible. Now, I, I, trust, I trust that the session would have words for me prior to getting to that point. But if there is something lacking or something being added, please tell me. But here's the problem. The people, they come, and nine times out of ten, they say, no, there's nothing, you know, theologically. It's not, not something that is related to the gospel message. No, you, you know, you're fine there. No, they're, they're, I, brother, there were no lock-ins. There's no climbing walls for my kids. There's no pizza parties. There's no youth pastor. Uh, or, I'm sorry, brother, the people here don't look enough like me. Uh, now, sometimes they actually do mean racially. I'm sorry, you just, you're, not, you're not enough. You're not. Or I've actually had, I've had conversations with people. Well, you know, the people here aren't really in my social strata. You know, it's not the same. Or even lower down the list, one might say, now oh, the music just isn't to my taste. It doesn't, I'm, I'm not moving and grooving. And, uh, you know, we, we found this church over here where, whoa, it is, man, dynamic. Totally. So we're going over there. Or my kids just didn't find enough friends. Or there aren't enough people who are my age. Something. Something about this world and the things that we find in this world. Now imagine going to your family members and saying, well, you know, I'm feeling a lack of affinity. I think we need to move apart. You know, let's, so I'm going to leave the family. In prior ages, that didn't happen. In our own crazy age, now that is beginning to happen, I, I admit. But that shouldn't determine who's part of your church family, just merely questions of affinity. Terrible things can happen when we make physical things, worldly things, affinity things, the grounds for our church union. I mean, we can think of obvious examples of that. You know, white nationalists, Aryans who form their own Aryan nation churches, or now they're even going for, further and forming these, these crazed Norse mythology-based churches. Churches. In very much a fair quote sense. And it's all about their white identity and white pride and so on. Or, on the other hand, people can come to you and do the, the other thing, and it'll be about black pride. It'll be about black identity. I saw that fist, brother. Uh, <laughs> it'll be about uh, social justice issues. That has happened as well. We have never lost so many families so quickly uh, following any world event as when Donald Trump was elected. After the, uh, after the riots in... Um, well, where was it? Minneapolis. That was it. Um, we lost people as well. It was very sad that it was it was over issues of that aren't related directly to the gospel. Now, this is not new. One of the saddest things was that uh, a little while after the apostolic age, uh, a group rose up who were very disturbed as more and more Gentiles were coming into the church. Initially, um, within the churches, they were happy that a few Gentiles were coming in. 
when the ethnic identity of the churches became overwhelmingly uh, Gentile, one of the things that happened was that the Jews began to be very, very upset. We're losing our identity. We're losing our language. We're losing what makes us Jewish. And so many of them separated. Uh, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus both spoke about these groups as the Ebionites. Uh, Ebionite means, uh, incidentally, that they were poor. They, they, uh, they thought poverty was actually a blessing. And so they moved apart. And they reinforced their Jewishness by saying that if you're going to be part of the Ebionite sect, not only do you need to be descended from Jews, you need to keep the Mosaic law. And then they, as time went on, their theology began to degrade more and more as they were removed from the church. The Ebionites adopted adoptionism, which is a Christology that says Jesus was, yes, he was, Jesus of Nazareth was a descendant of David, but he was merely a man who uh, was, by virtue of his righteousness, and the way that he perfectly followed the law of Moses, that he became adopted as God's son, chosen by God to be the prophet like Moses in that sense. And eventually, they were no longer part of the body, no longer part of the church. Most of the Ebionites uh, either were killed in the Jewish uh, um, uprisings that happened in the first century, or they simply melded back into the Jewish community. That happens too. Once you break apart from God's body, you tend to get more and more, to use the critical term, whack in your theology. We're, we see that. As people form these, these subgroups and so on, and their, their personal distinctives begin to trump Christian theology, you get all sorts of craziness going on. So remember this. Your real identity, regardless of where you were born, regardless of the language you speak, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of how much money you and your parents make or whatever, your real identity is to be found in your union to Christ. That is who you are. This world and all the things that separate men that have come from the, from the Tower of Babel, those things are not part of your eternal identity. Your eternal identity is to be found in union with Christ. And the people who you are united to Christ with in the church are closer to you than members of your family by blood. Certainly members of your nation, members of your ethnicity and so on. You are together living stones who are part of the temple. And it should not be possible to put the sheet of paper between you and them either. Nothing that men write on the internet or the political machinations that go on in this world should separate you from your brothers and sisters in Christ. And understand, the world, the flesh, and the devil have a vested interest in trying to do that. They hate the church. If they can split it by politics, if they can split it by ethnicity, if they can split it by whatever, they're going to do it. And do it and do it and do it. Thirdly, Remember the cornerstone. Remember the aim of your life. Not only remember your identity, but remember where you're going. And this is going to be one of the main thrusts of Paul as he's writing. He says, Jesus is the cornerstone of the living temple that you're part of. Therefore, you are to be conformed to the image of who? Jesus. You are to be conformed to the image of Christ. Let me give you a quote. The cornerstone of the building, in addition to being part of the foundation and therefore supporting the superstructure, finalizes its shape, being placed at the corner formed by the junction of two primary walls. It determines the lay of the walls and cross walls throughout. All the other stones must adjust themselves to this cornerstone. 
So also, in addition to resting in Christ, the spiritual house is determined as to its character by him. It is he who settles the question as to what this house is to be in the sight of God and as to what it is uh, its function in God's universe. It is Christ who gives the house its needed direction. Believers as living stones must regulate their lives in accordance with the will of the cornerstone. That should be our calling as a church, the will of Christ, not our preferences, not you know, the things of this world should determine how we look, how we preach, how we worship, everything about us, how we love one another, and how we think of one another should be determined by Christ and what he said. What did he say? A new rule I give you. What's the rule that he gave us? Love one another. That's our calling, to love one another and to be conformed to the image of Christ, to follow his laws, his commandments, and then share them with the world. Looking forward to that day when he certainly returns. In the meantime, we grow as part of that living temple and God's work is done in our midst and we rejoice. This is the message that Paul has been opening up. This is the message that I've been trying to preach for years. And I hope it's the message that we are taking in and we will carry with us into eternity. I love you all. I want you to know you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're united to Christ, you're part of the same living temple. So let's work together to continue to build up that temple. Let's work together to love one another. Let's work together to bring other living stones into this great edifice that God has been creating since the fall. Let's go before now. God, our Father, I thank you, Lord, for the work that you have been doing in our midst and in amongst us. We know we don't look like we're supposed to yet. We're in the quarry. We thank you, Lord, that you do that work of shaping and molding us, as painful as it is in a worldly sense sometimes. We know there are things that we have to, oh Lord, have polished in our, in our nature, things we have to give up, idols we have to do away with, things where we need to get square, Lord. But we know that you're going to do that process and that you mean good in the midst of it. Help us, therefore, Lord, not to argue with you and your providence, not to grumble against it. But, O oh Lord, help us also to remember to be conformed to the direction, the angle given to us by our, our cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Help us to rest upon him, be regulated by him, and do his will as he builds his temple. We thank you, and we ask now, Lord, that you would bless